to the reading of the Quad City Times for today, Thursday, February 15th, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Dale Finnegan and Dorothy Hockenberg. And now, with our first story, is Dorothy. Go to the Quad City Times. Part of old I-74 bridge to be removed. That by, this by Sarah Watson. One last boom. The Moline Anchorage, which is one of the final parts of the old I-74 bridge left, is set to be demolished with controlled explosives on Sunday, February 18th. It's expected to be the last part of the demolition to use explosives. That'll require an hour-long closure of the new I-74 bridge and river on Sunday. The main navigation channel in the river will be closed for up to 24 hours, starting at 6 a.m. February 18th. According to the Iowa Department of Transportation, areas outside the main navigation channel will be closed for up to 12 hours. Local law enforcement will be on-site monitoring the river during the demolition process, a news release from the department stated. The new I-74 bridge will be closed for about an hour Sunday morning. Local traffic will be directed to use the Centennial Bridge and through traffic will be rerouted to I-80 and I-20. Construction of the $1 billion new I-74 bridge began in 2017 and completed in 2021. Demolition of the old twin suspension bridges started in 2023 and is being done by demolition contractor Helm Group. Crowds came to, see, to watch the explosives topple the green towers and suspension cables. IDOT encourages the public to view the demolition live stream online at www.174riverbridge.com. I'm going to read the big headline on the front page, Just Like Her. This is, of course, about Caitlin Clark. The story is written by Gretchen Teske. Nora Meachin is going to play basketball for the Iowa Hawkeyes when she grows up. That last part is key. She's only 11 years old. Nora spends two days a week playing basketball at Beyond the Baseline in Davenport with dozens of other girls her age, all coached by Jackie Gray. Numbers for girls' basketball has skyrocketed in the last few years, Gray said. Some of it has to do with access and allowing them a chance to play. A lot of it, she said, has to do with one particular player on the Hawkeye women's team. Gray said, more girls are coming out because of Caitlin Clark. They see how great of an athlete she is and they want to be just like her. It's why, even though she's only 11, Nora has her heart set on joining the Hawkeye women in a few years. There's no other choice than to follow in Clark's footsteps. You gotta go to Iowa, Nora said. A record on the line. Caitlin Clark has become a household name the last few years after leading her team onto numerous victories and breaking records at the same time. Thursday night, tonight, all eyes will be on Clark and the Iowa women's basketball team when the Hawkeyes take on Michigan at home. The game will stream on Peacock at 7 p.m., where the question will be when, 
not if Caitlin Clark Blake's breaks the women's college basketball all-time scoring record. The current record was set in 2017 by Washington standout Kelsey Plum with 3,527 points. Clark is eight points shy of breaking it. Everywhere the Hawkeye women go, a following of fans, especially young girls wearing Clark's signature number 22, follow. It's been dubbed the Caitlin Clark Effect, and in the Quad Cities, it is in full force. Sipping from a water bottle with pictures of Clark plastered to the side, Nora, who is in fourth grade at Adams Elementary, did not even wait for the question to finish before answering who her favorite basketball player was. Caitlin Clark, she said, she's the best women's basketball player, end quote. Nora wears a Hawkeye watch on her wristband and the number 22 jersey on her back. She has a bedroom full of Caitlin Clark gear and two boxes of her signature cereal, Caitlin's Crunch Time, she said. Her teammate, Olivia Painter, is just as big a Clark fan as she is a basketball fan, she said. A fifth grader at Trinity Lutheran School in Davenport, she started playing in third grade. I just like sports in general, but by far basketball is my favorite, Painter said. I like the intensity on the court, end quote. She said she likes that determination can win the game. That resolve is something 11-year-old Painter recognized in her favorite player. She is so determined, and I just like her intensity. She is just always into the game, she said. I don't think I would be as focused if she wasn't there to watch, end quote. When it comes to women's sports, Clark isn't just the best, Painter said. She's the only player people are talking about. But that's not a bad thing, she said. The more attention Clark gets, the more attention women's sports get. And there could not be a better example to follow. I feel like women get more attention because of her, and she's a great role model. She's also doesn't let the fame get she also does not let the fame get to her head. She's very modest, said Painter. Women in sports have historically fought an uphill battle. In 1972, things turned a corner when Title IX, which gives female athletes the right to equal opportunities in sports, was signed by then-President Richard Nixon. It still took three more years for the, women's bas- for the first women's collegiate basketball game to be televised in January of 1975, with a game between University of Maryland and Immaculata College of Pennsylvania now Immaculata University. Not until 1981 did the Big Ten even vote to allow women into the conference. The conference started with only male athletes in 1896. By the time Katie Hassan graduated from Cambridge High School in 1987, things were slowly rolling along. But the athletes she had to look up to, like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, were all men. I didn't have women's basketball players. I didn't know about them until I was older, she said. After high school, Hassan was deciding where to play college ball. During that same time period, the St. Ambrose Bees were being coached by Lisa Bluter, now the head coach of the Hawkeye women. Bluter attempted to recruit Hassan over to St. Ambrose, Hassan said, but she chose Augustana instead. So then I had to try and play against her, and they would beat us, she said with a laugh. More than 30 years later, Hassan still holds records at Augustana, and she gets to watch Bluter on TV with the Hawks. A full circle moment. 
That's another little piece that I'm enjoying about the whole run, she said, to see the, addition the additional focus on women's Iowa women's basketball and everything Coach Bluter has done with that program and to reminisce about the early days of her career in the Quad Cities. End quote. Hassan is now the principal at Rock Ridge High School where, across the boards, kids are definitely talking about Hawkeye basketball, she said. The success of Clark and the Hawkeyes has caught the attention of everyone, boys and girls, in her school. She said it's awesome to see how she's bringing the athletes of all corners of the spectrum into the women's game. From a historical perspective, Hassan said, the women's game was not always the one to watch. It was not uncommon for her to play games where there were less than 50 people in the gym. Now, women's basketball has a national audience with sold-out crowds. It's so refreshing to see that attention on women's games, she said, to see what kind of doors that her success is opening for young women, whether it be women who are covering her or broadcasting games, and in all the advertising and merchandising realm. It's exciting to see the growth of women's sports across the board, end quote. Getting to an Iowa women's game is not an easy ticket, as tickets sell out fast and can be expensive. Those who are able to make it include Walcott Elementary 8th grader Maya Westerhoff, who made it to the crossover at Kinnick game last October. Played at the university, university's Kinnick Stadium, the Hawkeyes took on the DePaul Blue Demons. The game set the women's basketball single-game attendance record. It was crazy, she said. Everyone was so excited. Every time someone scored a point, the whole stadium went crazy. Westerhoff said being in the stadium gave her hope that people will start paying more attention to women's sports. After all, young women her age are already paying attention. She said, I don't know if Caitlin realizes or any one woman athlete knows how much of an impact they have on younger kids, not even in just basketball, but she makes me feel like I can do anything I set my mind to, end quote. That personal connection to the game is what helps bring the viewers in, Hassan said. When Rock Island native Bria Beal was playing for South Carolina, she found herself tuning in because of the hometown connection. Those types of things only help grow the game and grow women's, women's sports in general and give little girls out dribbling in the driveway something to look up to and emulate, she said. Izzy Kershaw is not a basketball player, but she certainly has a favorite team. She may not emulate them on the court, but she did so with her closing, clothing choice. Wednesday, Izzy forwent traditional Valentine's colors to wear a gray t-shirt with Davis 1 printed on the back for her own favorite Hawkeye, Molly Davis. But at 11 years old, Izzy is not a lifelong fan. That's a development that happened recently. I didn't know they existed until about seven months ago when my mom started going insane about them, Izzy said. She really likes Molly. She thinks she's an underlooked player, end quote. Izzy's Andalusia Elementary classmate, Hadley Darland, wore a shirt with Money Martin printed on the front. The shirt is in honor of Hawkeye guard Kate Martin, whose mother happens to be the girl's teacher. Their fifth grade class is full of sports fans, including Bennett Ledbetter, an 11-year-old encyclopedia of Hawkeye sports knowledge. Watching sports is a big part of his life, 
and now that he has a personal connection to a player, he keeps an eye on one player in particular. When she has a big 20-point game, I'm always like, oh, I better tell Mrs. Martin tomorrow that Kate did really good, he said. He's played a variety of sports, he said, but football is his favorite. He has his sights set on joining the NFL. But while he waits for tryouts, he closely watches the Iowa women's team and holds on to the dream of being like them. I see it as their hard work gets them there, and it inspires me to be like them, because that's my dream, to be one of the best out there, he said. To see Caitlin Clark or somebody like that, to always have fans, is inspiring to me, end quote. Bennett, who seemingly has a future as a sports analyst, said he only recently started hearing about women in sports. The conversation shifting is good, he said, because there are players out there who deserve and have earned the attention. I don't think anybody's talked about Steph Curry or anyone like that the way they are talking about Caitlin Clark, he said. I think she is so much better of an athlete, and she proves herself better than anyone else, end quote. Clark breaking the record Thursday night is nearly a guarantee, and so is Bennett and all of his classmates watching from home. The drive from Andalusia Elementary to Carver-Hawkeye Arena is about 66 miles, and even, cheap, and even cheaper ticket prices have topped $500. Kershaw said her family makes an event out of it and all sits together on the couch to watch with her parents offering coaching and commentary from the couch. Apparently, that's a familiar scene in the Ledbetter house. So does my mom, he said with a smile. Okay, now I'm turning to local. <clears throat> Molly, Moline, Rock Island, to get Smart Start funds by Grace Kinnicutt. The Illinois Quad Cities are set to see nearly $1 million in funding from the Illinois Department of Human Services, the governor's office announced. The funding is part of the state's Smart Start Illinois program, an initiative to increase funding to create 20,000 new preschool seats over four years, raise child care worker wages to bring stability to the field, and enhance programming, and expanding access to home visiting and early intervention services, Governor J.B. Pritzker proposed the program last year, and it is in the state's current budget. Funds are to assist children providers, child care providers, with transitioning and preparing for Smart Start Workforce grants. According to the governor's announcement, the grants will be available in the fiscal year 2025 budget, pending appropriation. Representative Greg Johnson, Democrat East Moline, said a robust child care system will give Illinois kids the foundation they need to grow up safe and healthy. By continuing to make higher quality, more affordable child care a priority, we are not just providing for families today, we are building a stronger future for every community in our state, Johnson said. Senator Mike Halpern, Democrat Rock Island, said it's time to promise Illinois family their children will not be left behind and that the state is one step closer to ensuring every child will receive a high-quality education. Funds for these 
initiatives will mostly focus on the fiscal year 2024. Early Childhood Block Grant Program, which aims for an increase of $75 million per year for four years to eliminate early childhood education deserts by 2027. It also aims to provide $130 million to increase childcare worker wages. SMART starts first in the nation, $130 million childcare workforce grants are providing a much needed solution to stabilize and grow the childcare sector, allowing existing and new childcare providers to give even more families affordable quality care, Pritzker said. Officials proposing municipal ID program, and this is in Moline. The story is written by Grace Kinnicutt. Two Moline officials are proposing a municipal identification card to help residents navigate life around the community. Alderman Alvaro Macias, 2nd Ward, and Jessica Finch, 5th Ward, are proposing the Moline Compass Municipal Identification Card. The card would be a local government-issued ID offered to Moline residents. Not only does it help emergency personnel with the identification process, but it also connects Moline residents with services that the city of Moline has to offer, Finch said. Speaking with parents, Finch said they were excited to have another resource tool. According to the proposed ordinance, card benefits would include the following providing access to city services that require proof of residency or ID, facilitating opening a bank account, proof of identity for leases and utilities. It would double as a library card. It would facilitate efficient interactions with police and first responders where no ID is available. And finally, it would provide discounts or deals at local businesses. Macias said the IDs will not replace government-issued IDs such as licenses. People will not be able to use it for things such as getting into a bar, purchasing alcohol, or buying tobacco, he said. To simply put it, it is just an ID that is recognized by our local government, Macias said. The ID could not be used to vote, to drive, to board airplanes, to purchase alcohol or tobacco, enter places with age restrictions, or prove employment eligibility, as stated in the proposed ordinance. The card would also not allow funds to be added, such as to use the bus bus system. Resident Devon White spoke in favor of the program, saying in 2023 he suffered from cardiac arrest and multiple seizures, leaving him disabled and no longer able to have a valid driver's license. I cannot drive myself back to my hometown of Quincy, Illinois to get my birth certificate or my passport, White said. A city ID program would allow me to have identification here. To avoid possible confusion, 7th Ward Alderman Anna Castro asked if it would be possible to make it clear on the card what the card is not valid for. The city's legal counsel said they can and would need to be exact in how it is phrased. The Moline Public Library would administer and maintain the program. Library Director Byron Lear said additional training will likely be needed for employees to get familiar with any documents that are needed 
for a municipal ID to be issued. According to council documents, the program would roughly need $18,000 to get started with hardware and software from the city council contingency funds. It would then need about $1,000 annually in maintenance and cardstock from the library's yearly budget. Moline Coal Valley School Leaders Eye Selling Allendale by Olivia Allen. Moline Coal Valley school leaders gave an update on the district's ongoing strategic facilities plan on Monday, including a new proposal to vacate and sell one longtime property. The district last updated this plan in 2021, an initiative led by a 17-person facilities committee comprised of stakeholders, staff, parents, and community members. At Monday's school board meeting, a, Colleen, a Moline Coal Valley Superintendent, Rachel Savage, recommended updating this plan every five years, citing aggressive facility improvements goals and outlined tentative plans to sell Allendale, which houses the district's centralized office departments. Built in the early 1900s, Allendale is one of three district buildings over 100 years old along with Logan and Willard Elementary Schools, located at 1619 11th Avenue in Moline. Frank G. Allen donated this property when he and his family, where he and his family formerly lived, to the Moline Board of Education in the 1920s. I believe the district has been very good stewards of that gift from the Allen family, Savage said. We've adapted Allendale about as far as we can go. Costly maintenance is a key factor behind the proposal to vacate and sell Allendale, aligning with both 2010 and 2021 Strategic Facilities Plan recommendations. Since Allendale is an old house, also lacking full Americans with Disability Act, ADA, accessibility, Savage said the property does not align with the expectations and culture of a high-functioning, collaborative, modern office. District leaders propose to relocate from Allendale to 21 47th Street in Moline, a former IH Mississippi Valley Credit Union building. Totaling just under 30,500 square feet, this property is currently listed at $2.45 million with all furniture and furnishings included. Calling it a thoroughly vetted and researched proposal, Savage said moving to 47th Street would provide much-needed space for functional collaboration and addresses varying professional development needs. This new central office space could house approximately 85 staff members, clearing up space for program expansions in other district buildings, Savage said. For example, moving the district's Educational Technology Department out of Moline High School's D-Wing would create room for an increased career and technical education offerings. District staff's transition to 47th Street property could start by this summer, said Vince Gallo, CFO of Moline Coal Valley Schools. We would put Allendale up for sale in the fall of 2024, he added. As previously reported, 
Plans to expand Lincoln Irving Elementary School are in progress. Last month, the board voted to partner with Russell Construction for the conceptual planning of this project, a contract not to exceed $17,500. While construction and renovation details are still pending, district leaders estimate costs to be a total $50 million. Upon project completion, Lincoln Irving will be able to accommodate four classes per grade level. As previously reported, the expansion will make room for an additional 500 to 600 students at the school. Notably, this would allow Lincoln Irving to absorb students relocating from Willard, a nearly 125-year-old building slated to close by the end of 2027. We love Willard and it has served its mission for our community, Savage said. If you recall, we were not able to air condition Willard. Also, ADA accessibility is a big concern at Willard as well. Moline Coal Valley officials will need to redraw district boundary lines so former Willard neighborhoods fall into Lincoln Irving's attendance zone. Also underway is a full-scale athletic facility improvement study. Partnering with Legat Architects, the district focused on outdoor athletic facilities for the first phase of this study. All of those sites are going very well, Facilities Director Keith Karsten said on Monday. We hope to have those outdoor projects lined out by May. Moline Coal Valley leaders approved another preliminary contract with Russell Construction for these projects, not to exceed $21,400. Savage also gave a rundown of recently completed facility projects Monday, notably. 1. Installing new upgraded HVAC system at Moline High School, Washington, Logan, Lincoln, Irving, Adams, and Butterworth Elementary Schools. 2. LED lighting upgrades and or installation at the high school in Washington, Lincoln, Irving, Jane Adams, Butterworth, Hamilton, Franklin, Logan, and Willard. These upgrades are planned to hit John Deere and Wilson Middle Schools, Wharton Fieldhouse and Bicentennial, Jefferson and Roosevelt Elementary Schools by next year, Gallo said. 3. Parking lot upgrades at Butterworth and Horace Mann Elementary Schools. 4. Building the Bartlett Performing Arts Center and renovating physical education facilities at the high school. For full presentation, watch Monday's meeting live stream on the Moline Television YouTube channel. I'm going to have a few minutes to read just a little bit back from the front page of a, a story about the um, Rock Island Myland uh, School Board. And uh, the headline says, School Board Dives Into Aquatic Center Plans. Um, and this is written by Olivia Allen. On Tuesday, the Rock Island Myland School Board dove into design plans for Rock Island High School's new aquatic center. As previously reported, the board voted to build a new eight-lane pool at Rocky in partnership with Leggett Architects, a project estimated to total $14.75 million. Upon completion, this new aquatic center will bring swimming back to Rocky after nearly two years without an operable pool. At the school board meeting Tuesday night, Rock Island Milan CFO Jennifer Barton gave community members an update on this project. 
She shared two conceptual design options for the new aquatic center. The, the designs are still preliminary. The first option includes the following design features. On the first floor, an eight-lane competitive pool, a diving well with two boards, four shallow warm-up lanes, public and athlete locker rooms, office space for coaches and meat management, pool storage, and mechanical space. And on the second floor, a lobby, spectator seating, public bathrooms, flexible classroom, classroom space, ticket concessions, and storage. The Aquatic Center Design Committee, comprised of district staff, community members, pool consultants, and legal architects, selected the first option, Barton said. So far, this group's primary focus has been gathering input from all stakeholders in terms of how Rocky's new aquatic center could serve both the school district and external community. The project, uh, there's a little bit more about the project, but I'll go ahead and come to the conclusion before we move on to the obituaries. The remaining estimated project timeline is as follows. The bid opening will be on Tuesday, July 30th, 2024. Board approval will be Tuesday, August 13th, 2024. Construction will start Thursday, August 15th, 2024. And substantial project completion, December 15th, 2025. While this timeline is subject to change, Barton said that the district plans to have Rocky's new aquatic center ready for use by January 8th of 2026. And as a program note, you are listening to the Quad City Times on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now here's Dorothy to begin our obituaries. Turning now to obituaries, James N. Berkey, May 13, 1940, February 13, 2024. James N. Berkeley, 83, of Clinton passed away Tuesday, February 13, at Fieldstone in DeWitt. Memorial visitation will be from 2 to 4 p.m. Friday, February 16, at the Clinton Chapel Snell Zornig Funeral Home and Crematory. Online condolences may be expressed by visiting his obituary at www.com. James Norman Berkey was born May 13, 1940, in Humiston, Iowa the son of James Renwick and Phyllis Didymer Ritchie Berkey. He married Dorothy Elida Earhart in June 1965. She passed away in January. James earned a bachelor's degree from Parsons College and from the University of Iowa. He earned his master's degree from Drake University. James worked for the Mississippi Bend AEA for over 30 years as a special education consultant. He was an Eagle Scout and won the Silver Eagle Award. He was an avid hunter, outdoorsman, and horseman, and was a member of Ducks Unlimited and Pheasants Forever. He enjoyed watching Western movies, especially John Wayne and bird watching. He was a ham radio enthusiast with a call sign NIOQ. In high school, he was on the swimming team and worked as a lifeguard. While teaching at Clinton High School, he was a swimming and diving coach. He was a polio survivor, and he never let anything hold him back from doing what he loved. Jim enjoyed music and playing the drums. He enjoyed telling jokes and was an avid Hawkeye fan 
and the DJ of Spring Rock. Memorials may be made to the Prairie Pastures Dog Park in Clinton or to the March of Dimes. At Harper's Ferry, Roland A. Gents, G-E-N-Z, December 21, 1932, February 11, 2024. Roland A. Gents, 91, of Harper's Ferry, died Sunday, February 11, at his home. Funeral services will be held Saturday, February 17th at 12 p.m. at Martin Grau Funeral Home in Waukon, Iowa. Burial with military honors will be at 16 Cemetery, Rural Monona. Friends may greet the family from 11 a.m. until time of services on Saturday at the funeral home. Roland Alfred Jens was born on December 21, 1932 in Postville, Iowa the son of Herman Jens and Carrie Schlitter Jens. He grew up in Allen-McKee County, Iowa, and attended school through eighth grade. When Roland was nine years old, his family moved to the Quad Cities. From 1951 to 55, Roland served in the U.S. Navy as an aircraft mechanic. On October 11, 1952, he married Eileen Mary Shoemaker in Comanche, Iowa. After being honorably discharged, Roland moved to Clinton and worked various jobs as a garbage man, pouring concrete and working in scrapyard. He then worked for Formal in Rock Island, Illinois, before going to John Deere in the early 1970s, at which point he and the family moved to LeClaire, Iowa. In 1991, he retired as the maintenance supervisor. He and Eileen then permanently moved to Harper's Ferry. After Eileen died in 2016, Petey the Orange Cat became his beloved companion for the past eight years. He loved fishing on the river for panfish and catfish and deer hunting. From 1965 to 82, Roland and friends would take their annual hunting trip to Wyoming. An avid bowler and golfer, he participated in the John Deere Golf League for many years eventually giving up both sports once COVID hit. He was quite the handyman and tinkerer as well. Roland was a member of the American Legion in Harper's Ferry. Online condolences may be left at www.martinfunerals.com. Dr. William John Mass, September 14, 1937, February 13, 2024. Dr. William John Mass, 86, of North Liberty, passed away Tuesday, February 13th in North Liberty. Visitation will be Saturday, February 17th from 1 to 2 p.m. at the Runge Mortuary. A prayer service will follow at 2 p.m. Funeral services will be at St. George's Greek Orthodox Church in DeKalb, Illinois, on Monday, February 19th at 3 p.m with visitation from 2 to 3 p.m. at the church. The Finch Funeral Home will be handling those arrangements. His final resting place will be in Fairview Park Cemetery in DeKalb, Illinois. Memorials may go to your favorite charity. Online condolences may be left at www.rungemortuary.com. William was born September 14, 1937 in Davenport, 
to William Henry and Martha Bush, Mass. He attended Hayes Elementary, Smart Junior High, and graduated from Davenport High School in 1958. He attended classes at Iowa State University and the University of Iowa prior to completing his B.S. at St. Ambrose. He completed a master's degree in physics at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb in 1973. While there, he met Regina Dionysopoulos. I will spell that D-I-O-N-I-S-O-P-O-U-L-O-S. And they married in December 30, 1973. They moved to College Station, Texas, where Bill obtained a Ph.D. in geophysical oceanography from Texas A&M. His dissertation topic was about tsunamis, and he was offered a one-year position as a visiting scientist at University of Hawaii. Happily, they moved to Hawaii, intending it to be a one-year adventure in paradise. Towards the end of that year, he applied for a position at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center in Iwa Beach. This job was interesting and challenging. He analyzed earthquake information from the entire Pacific and determined if they were likely to cause a tsunami, issuing a watcher warning as needed. Bill did significant research in computer modeling of tsunamis. Their son, Bill, was born and raised in Hawaii. When Will joined Cub Scouts and later Boy Scouts, Bill became an active scout leader. They enjoyed hiking, camping, and any project about nature. Bill had many interests, including the life and history of Blackhawk. He wrote a book about the Lewis and Clark expedition and held a lifelong interest in the Lewis and Clark expedition. And he was a member of the Lewis and Clark Society. An avid sailor, he sailed many parts of the world, including extensively in the Hawaiian Islands on board his West Sail, the Tricker. Bill was a life member of the Waikiki Yacht Club. In May 2017, 40 years into their one-year adventure, Bill and Regina moved to North Liberty, Iowa. The family wishes to thank the exceptional doctors, nurses, and staff at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics for their excellent care and advice, especially Dr. Mazan Aishi. They also thank the staff of North Liberty Dialysis and Essence of Life Hospice. Reverend Jack L. Haino, age 86, has gone to live with his Lord after a full and faith-filled life. He passed away on February 12th. Funeral services will be held at 11.30 a.m. on Friday, February 16th at St. John's Lutheran Church in East Moline. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. until services start at 11.30 a.m. at the church. Burial will be at the Rock Island Arsenal National Cemetery. Jack attended Concordia Theological Cemetery in Springfield, Illinois, where he met his future wife, Mary Linda. His lifetime of service included serving congregations in Farmington, Minnesota, Mellon, Wisconsin, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Webster City, Iowa, Geneseo, Illinois, and East Dundee, Illinois. In 1967, Jack and Mary moved to Oceanside, California, just outside of Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton. Jack served as a frontline battalion chaplain for the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, the, quote, Walking Dead, 
in Vietnam from 1967 to 1968, where he received the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and achieved the rank of Navy Captain. Jack Hino, or Hino, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I apologize, it's H-E-I-N-O, completed his career of service as the Chief of Chaplains for all U.S. Armed Forces Chaplains of the World, based out of Washington, D.C., he and Mary returned to live in East Moline, Illinois in 1995 when he retired and continued to serve as a chaplain at the Rock Island Arsenal. Memorials may be shared online by visiting esterdahl, E-S-T-E-R-D-A-H-L dot com. Bob Coffron, K-O-F-R-O-N. It is with heavy hearts and deep sadness that we announce the passing of a beloved husband, father, grandfather, and friend, Bob Coffrin. He departed this world on February 13th at OSF Hospital, Peoria, leaving behind a legacy of laughter, love, and a roaring passion for life. Graveside services will be held at 2 p.m. Friday, February 16th at Zuma Township Cemetery, located at 25263. 66th Avenue North in Port Byron, Illinois. Gibson Bodie Funeral Home in Port Byron is in care of the arrangements. Memorials may be made to Family House 1339 East Nebraska Avenue, Peoria, Illinois 61603. Bob was born December 15, 1942 in Iowa City, the son of Robert J. Coffrin Sr. and A. Bernice John Greiner. He served his country in the U.S. Navy from 1960 to 1964. He married Deborah K. Powell on May 20, 2005. Bob retired from two careers. He first worked for Oscar Mayer in Davenport and then became a millwright for the Millwright Local 2158. He was a member of the Tin Can Sailors, the Kelowna American Legion, and the Eagles Club in Carbon Cliff. Bob was not just a man. He was a force of nature. His infectious humor, quick wit, and mastery in the art of joke-telling brought joy and laughter to everyone. With a heart as expansive as his great size, he embraced those around him with love and warmth, often expressing it through his trademark, one-armed hugs. Bob was an avid race car driver, and his passion for the sport was a flame that ignited the hearts of his children and grandchildren. In every pursuit, he approached life and racing with unwavering effort. He leaves behind a legacy of speed, excitement, and love for the open road. The roar of engines and the thrill of the race will forever echo in the memories of those he leaves behind. Known far and wide as Hemi Bob, he was a man who touched the lives of countless people. Whether on the racetrack or in everyday interactions, he exuded a genuine character that made him a friend to all. His nickname became synonymous with his love for powerful engines and his kind-hearted spirit. Bob's departure leaves a void that cannot be filled, but his memory will live on in the laughter shared, the stories told, and the love he showered upon his family and friends. As we mourn the loss of this remarkable man, let us also celebrate the joy he brought into our lives and carry forward the lessons of love, laughter, and passion that he so generously imparted. May he rest in peace, surrounded by the echoes of roaring engines and the warmth of eternal love. If you would like to share a memory or condolence, you can do so at the website Gibson, 
BodieFH.com. And finally, Jane Ann Allen, known as Nana, age 63, left this earth on February 11th after a 12-year battle with ovarian cancer. A celebration of life service will be held on Friday, February 16th at 2 p.m. at Our Savior Lutheran Church, located at 3775 Middle Road in Bettendorf. Following the service, we invite everyone to a reception and visitation at Grace Technologies at 1515 Kimberly Road in Davenport. No one loved a party full of food, fun, and music more than Jane, so that's how we will celebrate her legacy. In lieu of flowers and gifts, the family would like to support the Believe in the Cure Fund at Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center at the UI Hospitals and Clinics. Please direct gifts to Believe in the Cure by going to their website or a check can be sent to the University of Iowa Center for Advancement, P.O. Box 4550, Iowa City, Iowa 52244. For all donations, please include in memory of Jane Allen slash Believe in the Cure Fund. Jane was born on May 13, 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She was the daughter of Thomas and Judy Krittner and graduated from Brown Deer High School in 1978. After high school, she received her nursing degree from Milwaukee Area Technical College and became a nurse. Jane married Philip Brown Allen on November 2, 1985 at Trinity Community Church in Brown Deer, Wisconsin. Jane lit up the room and made best friends everywhere she went. She loved deeply. She cared intensely. She listened like you were the only one in the world. Her passion was unquenchable, and she was an incredible wife to Phil, mom to Drew, and Becca. All her life, Jane defied the odds and soared above her health challenges. We expected nothing less when she faced the hard realities of ovarian cancer. Over the years, Jane encouraged countless patients in the infusion suites and waiting rooms during her many appointments in Iowa City. Online condolences may be made to Jane's family by visiting her obituary at the website weertsfh.com. Okay, going back to the Opinion Quad City Times, another view, this from the Wall Street Journal. CBO shows U.S. paddling to fiscal falls. Forecast indicates entitlements and debt payments are squeezing national defense. The Congressional Budget Office rudely interrupted the presidential campaign by releasing its 10-year budget outlook. Neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump wants to talk about the woolly mammoth in the room. But somebody has to point out that the growing entitlements and debt payments are squeezing national defense. CBO forecasts that under current law, the national debt will grow to $48.3 trillion in 2034 from $26.2 trillion this last fiscal year, a whopping 84% increase. Debt as a share of GDP will rise to 116% in 2034 from 97.3%. As helpful historical context, the U.S. added $22.3 trillion in debt in its entire history through 2021, about as much as it's projected to pile on over the next 10 years. 
don't blame Americans for not paying enough taxes. Revenues are expected to average 17.8% of GDP through 2034, which is more than 17.3% average over the last 50 years. The problem is that spending over the next decade will average 23.5% of GDP, significantly more than the 50-year average of 21%. Even these debt projections may be optimistic. They assume no recession and that the 2017 Individual Tax Cuts and Inflation Reduction Act's sweetened Obamacare subsidies expire in 2025. Oh, and that Congress doesn't lather on more spending, and more student debt isn't cancelled by executive decree. What are the odds? It's true the budget gnomes often underestimate economic growth. CBO may be pessimistic in assuming that GDP will rise on average by only 2% annually through 2034. Increased productivity from artificial intelligence and other technologies could put the country on a higher growth plane. But in any case, the growth in spending and especially entitlements is unsustainable. Discretionary spending is expected to climb by $372 billion over the next 10 years. But mandatory programs will balloon by some $2.5 trillion and hit the $6.3 trillion in 2034, almost entirely owing to growth in Medicare, Social Security, and Medicaid. Growing deficits will compound and increase interest payments. The U.S. this fiscal year will spend an estimated $870 billion on servicing the debt, which is more than it will spend on defense. By 2034, interest payments will grow to $1.6 trillion, or 3.9% of GDP. Meanwhile, defense spending is at a post-war low of 3% of GDP and heading lower. It's déclassé in Washington these days to suggest that entitlements need to be reformed. Democrats pretend that soaking the rich will make the Social Security and Medicare trust funds solvent. It won't. Or they plan to ration care by reducing payments for medicines and providers. Republicans say economic growth can do the job. This is essential, but it's no longer enough with entitlements growing so fast. Future benefits will have to be adjusted one way or another, and the pain will be that much less the sooner this happens. It's almost as if everyone in Washington is blithely paddling toward Niagara Falls. Enjoy the scenery on the way down. There is a political cartoon today in the Quad City Times opinion page. It is a drawing by Phil Hands, and it is a drawing of just one person, uh, a man who is a heavier man. He is um, wearing a T-shirt that has no sleeves. Uh, It's got ragged, torn-off sleeve openings and a neck opening that often also looks uh, ragged and torn. He has a fist in the air. He's wearing a mega cap. The caption at the top says, Speaking of memory issues, and the speech bubble from this man whose T-shirt also says Trump 2024, the speech bubble says, Everything was better when Donald Trump was president. I will go ahead and read the uh, second opinion on this page. This is by 
L.Z. Granderson, and the title is, If the Economy is So Great, Why Are Evictions Soaring? Granderson writes for the Los Angeles Times. Another migrant crisis is brewing. Unlike the one at the southern border, this one will be all over the country. A recent Harvard study found that half of the country rent half of the country's renters are spending a third or more of their income on housing. Those are the people fortunate enough to find housing amid a nationwide shortage of affordable homes. Combine the rent with the soaring cost of childcare and don't forget groceries and well, you can understand why evictions and homelessness have soared. We're living through an age of contradictions. The United States is the strongest economy in the world, and Americans' credit card debt has never been higher. The unemployment rate has been less than 5% for President Joe Biden's entire first term, and voters disapprove of his handling of the economy. Wall Street predicted that last year's gross domestic product would grow by less than 2%, and instead it grew by 2.5%. Yet the economy feels weak to a lot of people. That's because for many people, the economy is weak. The top 1% now has more money than the nation's entire middle class. For Americans with the lowest incomes, rent is just the beginning of the worries. Unaffordable rent is a continuation of the wealth redistribution that accompanied the economic policies of President Ronald Reagan. Before disco, the top 10% shared 30% of the nation's income, while the remaining 90% lived off the rest. Today, the bottom 90% is getting by with less than 60% of the income. The top 1% took in 14.6% in 2021, which is twice their 7.3% share in 1979, according to the Economic Policy Institute. After 1979, Reagan convinced voters to make capital more more important than people. Give the rich more, and the extra will trickle down. Remember that? Greed is a part of capitalism, but it's not a part of patriotism. Reagan's characterization of our economy conflated those two concepts, and many Americans embraced that fallacy as truth. Those who struggled to achieve prosperity were viewed as lazy and unworthy of help. Something had to be wrong with them, the thinking went, because nothing was wrong with this, quote, land of opportunity. This was the era when well-paying manufacturing jobs went elsewhere. This was when large, successful companies were able to take in, to rake in record profits, while hard-working employees began to rely on food stamps to feed their families. And now Congress is trying to solve the housing crisis by offering housing developers more tax credits. So much for the invisible hand of the free market, right? Though the need for more affordable housing is high, developers apparently do not make enough money to want to do it. So government has to dangle a carrot to ensure that thriving corporations will thrive even more. I'm going to skip to the last couple paragraphs of this piece as we're running short of time. This sorry state of the American economy is not attributable entirely to either party or any one presidential administration. This redistribution has continued on everyone's watch. But we are reaching a point where a lot of people are fed up with their hard work not paying off, and they're going to take action. That's why the Wall Street Journal dubbed 2023 the year of the strike. Workers saw the prosperity at the top and demanded their fair share. 
We need Congress to close the tax loopholes that have allowed trillions of dollars to be redirected away from the many and hoarded by the few. The rent crisis isn't a new problem. It's the latest incarnation of the one that started when policymakers began to pretend that greed is good. And again, that opinion was written by L.Z. Granderson from the Los Angeles Times. Well, that brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Dorothy Hockenberg. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time. Go to our website, iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.